Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. But I, I think it's it's so important right now. Like I feel like what this generation wants and the up and coming generation we want to see ourselves in the story and in the narrative and i think for profits are taking notice of that especially with instagram and social media and influencers and micro influencers and macro influencers and i'm in awe of how the archibald project has been doing it and now i'm like oh what lexus is taking notice of just the average person telling their story yeah. and that's pretty cool you know what's interesting about Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Whitney and Nick Runyon. Guys, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be here. So tell us a bit about, well, tell us about the Archibald Project. Let's just start there. Tell us about the Archibald Project. Oh, man, there's so much to tell. I think a good way to start is just kind of even where the name came from. And so actually, I used to be an airline pilot for about eight and a half years. And Whitney was a wedding photographer. And she was doing a photo shoot for an acquaintance out in Houston one day. And she just really had this feeling that there was something there, like a reason to be there on this shoot and nothing was really happening. And then at the end of the photo shoot, she asked the mom that she was photographing her and her daughter, if they were going to have any more kids. And the mom goes, well, we're actually in the process of adopting. And she would say it was just this, like, it just hit her. She knew that that was the reason. So in true Whitney fashion, she blurted out, I think we're supposed to go with you and document your adoption. And the mom was kind of taken back and didn't know what to say, but she was like, let me talk to my husband. And Whitney was like, yeah, I should probably ask my husband too. And so we talked about it for a while, almost didn't go on the trip, but then literally the morning of where the dad was leaving to go meet or... He's ad- about ad- to fly to Bulgaria that day. To adopt his son. And we woke up that morning and, and we-, we were like, we got to figure out how we're going to get to Bulgaria today. So we ended up booking non-ref tickets on my flight benefits, and we ended up making all the flights and flew that Saturday to Bulgaria with the dad, and then took a three-hour car ride to like central Bulgaria, and then documented this adoption of a seven-year-old boy with Down syndrome. And it was just beautiful. It was just this incredible story. We didn't think much of it, but came back 
put the pictures and the story on Facebook. Whitney did in a family that we had never met, contacted us a little while after and said, hey, we just want to let you know that because of your story and those photos, we are now adopting a chronically ill child and we wouldn't have found him if it hadn't been for your story. And so the little boy from Bulgaria, his name was Archie. And so we named the Archibald Project after Well, we realized, him. we realized that stories and photos could help children find family. And so that became our mission then. Like we have to start a nonprofit. We have to get legit and do this. And so we formed a 501c3 nonprofit and decided to name it after Archie. So it's the Archibald project. Yeah. And we and we did documented adoptions for a while. But then as we learned, we were pretty naive to the whole orphan crisis around the world at the beginning. But as we started traveling more and learning more, we kind of started shifting to more of a holistic picture of all the, one, the root causes of why kids are orphaned in the first place and trying to tell stories around that. And even just telling stories about families that were already in the middle of adoption or some sort of caring for vulnerable children and supporting them in their work. So yeah, basically, I know you asked, what is the Archibald Project? (laughs) But we are an orphan care advocacy organization, and we use media to tell these stories to inspire people and equip people to care for vulnerable children. Yeah. You know, it's been so fun doing this this miniseries on the show with with all of you involved with Orphan Myth has been like this major education for me. And like, you know, I, I felt like I was somewhat informed, just we worked so hard with our counter trafficking charity child rescue for 10 years. And you, yeah. you know, I've learned a lot from that, but I've just learned so much more just doing these interviews. You know, Lindsay had really helped me see the vision, Lindsay Hadley on this idea of like, you know, probably the best prevention campaign we could ever do is like helping kids get out of orphanages, either back to their parents or to a forever family or like getting out of the foster system and into a forever family so they don't age out and yeah. and become those targets for for traffickers, you know? Absolutely. And it just it makes so much financial sense. You know, it's it's like literally an order of magnitude cheaper from a like leave all the human suffering and the important parts out. Right, right. And you know, again, I just I keep meeting these great people that that you guys are associated with and now we started doing some work for we've been volunteering some time and helping make videos with the America's Kids Belong guys. I don't know if you've met Oh yeah, some of we've them had yet. Them. we just had them on our podcast. We just did them on our okay. podcast, yeah. Yeah, and just, you know, like our our consulting firm that advises CEOs, we've done some work with it for their leadership team a little bit and stuff. And to me, what I think is so interesting is the innovation that's happening of like, you know, there's some folks that are like, hey, institutionalizing children is obviously uh, less helpful than we used to think. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, can we, you know, things when you say orphan or you, you say orphanage that I believed growing up, like finding out, oh, it's not actually that way has been right. like really surprising. But what I'm most inspired is like folks like you guys and and the other folks that you're doing stuff with are like, hey, we don't need to tear down the system. Let's just repurpose it. How can we take existing infrastructure and and like use it for for a higher good kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. Can you can you talk about what some of your advocacy efforts with with this have been? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, one of them specifically is we are in the process of creating a, a video that just really breaks this down in a clear way, this idea of orphanages and just showing people how orphanages are perfectly positioned already to start investing in the community and building up the community to where they wouldn't even really be needed like they are now. And I think the more people can realize that and not just throw them out, but like start shifting their funding toward things that will build up that community focus people will be able to care for their children because a lot of times they're separated because of poverty. And so I love that people are catching that vision 
And then, and really like our role with the Archibald project is what we do is tell stories. So media is our thing. We're always trying to create media around things that people either don't know, or maybe that things people need a deeper understanding of or just need to see someone else doing so they can be inspired to do the same thing. Yeah, because like you said, the general public is, you think, orphan, no living parents, no living family, completely alone in the world. You hear orphanage and you think, oh, it's full of children who have zero parents. And that's just not the case. So we're trying to further educate through our media what is truly going on. You know, I'm, I'm interested with with Austin being such a cool city, like, there's not that many cool <laughs> cities in the country. Austin <laughs> is one of the cool ones where you guys live. I'm wondering, you know, whether it's South by Southwest or just other Texas influences. I'm interested in what it is about media that attracted to you guys. I mean, I, I'm obviously a huge fan. You know, we started the charity so that we could get attention. We started the show, this podcast, so we get attention for our charity. But can you talk about just the amplification of like doing good work probably isn't enough if nobody finds out about it? Oh, absolutely. And mm-hmm. Honestly, we kind of fell into this. We didn't really intend to start a nonprofit, nor did we continue, nor did we plan to continue a nonprofit. I remember when like we actually started the nonprofit, I thought, oh, two years. We'll be here doing this for two years and then we'll move on and do something else. And it, it just kept growing and getting bigger and bigger. And what I've been really thankful for is our audience is really passionate about the stories we're sharing. So our stories don't fall on deaf ears. Our stories fall on people that care and then take action. And another thing I'm really thankful for is we've kind of become this trusted source that we vet the stories, we vet the people, and we've learned the hard way really about a lot of corruption going on in this world. And so I'm super thankful that yes, stories are really important, but if no one's seeing them, it doesn't matter. And so I am very thankful that people are seeing our stories and they are taking action. Yeah. And I would add to that, that like take it small scale to let's say some like the foster care system, right? If you think about the US, the number of available homes that there really are for foster children far outweighs the number of children in the system, right? So where where's the disconnect? Like why can we not seem to get people to step up and care for these kids? And I think what we've discovered and is that the main thing is fear. And you can't get people over their fears by giving them statistics, by giving them a sad story that, you know, that just makes them feel bad. You have to inspire people. And I mean, you know, as well as anybody, like stories are a timeless way of communicating to people in a way that shows them not only that they have the power to do it, but it it can cast these kids and these people in a light that's not a negative stereotype like you're used to seeing a lot of times. And so we've just seen that if, if we're going to solve a problem like kids in the foster care system in the U.S., we have to get more people involved and to get more people involved, we have to get them over their fears. And the way to do that is through a story. Yeah. You know, I'd love today because we, we've had a lot of other organizations on the show already talking about the issue, talking about what's going on. And and something I think would be fun to do in this episode is, is talk about, you know, what are the lessons that for-profit businesses can learn from the successes you guys are having in nonprofit? Like, I think about well, what you you're know, saying. Go ahead. No, no, no you're good. Well, I'm thinking about what you're saying and I'm thinking like, because I've seen that nonprofit for sure. 
at Child Rescue, we spent the first six months, we started like halfway through 2009, spent the first six months telling people these horror stories. And like the dads would get angry and be like, I just need a $1 problem solver. And I'll, I'll take care of that. <laughs> you know, shoot some people, right? right. And like the moms would like, the moms would like curl up in the fetal position and say, I can't, I can't hear that. I just, I know it's terrible, but I just can't hear that. Right. And then like about six months in, when Lindsay Hadley was ramping us up, they, they were getting ready to run this prevention campaign. A bunch of high school kids were going to train them to like run a, a chapter at their high school, right? And we connect with some survivors who we want to come teach the classes. And like there's this, this great gal, Natasha Herzig, who grew up in an uh, upper income family in California, got trafficked. These, these guys had her like calling home, telling her mom that she was doing makeup for models on tour. They're really trafficking her. Right. Anyways, mm. NYPD, it was this, this crazy escape story and NYPD ends up saving the day. And then America's most wanted ends up catching her trafficker and she gets to testify at his trial. It's like this oh big sister. We started telling people, Hey, this great girl who's come in to speak to our youth and the success of this woman. And all of a sudden people go like, that's amazing. How can I get involved? And we're like, well, that, that hasn't happened. <laughs> and we just right. found out like, it's a terrible, depressing, hard issue. And the success stories are what make it contagious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? absolutely. And like people hearing about my mother-in-law, you know, four, four generations of trafficking abandoned by her mom at 13 and yet goes on to raise a, a dentist and two business owners and a her fourth child's happily married with three kids. And she's a grandma and many, many mm. aspects of the American wow. dream. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah. these are not like, these are not throwaway kids. That term shouldn't even exist. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Absolutely. right. Yeah. And so I, I'm interested, you know, I think about this idea of fear of like, I would love to use helping foster kids find forever families and and, you know, orphans around the world find forever families as the case study. But like, what are the lessons for-profit businesses can take from this? And like, the first one I'm thinking about when you said fear, like, we're trying to get, you know, wealthy business owners or credit investors to buy into our um, real estate, our, our commercial real estate investments, right? Mm-hmm. And the fear is like, evident. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, most absolutely. people, like, if they're willing to take the meeting with me, then they they like real estate. They, they've got something attracting them to real estate. And yeah. if there's, if if they're not writing a check, it probably comes down to fear about something, right? Yeah, and, absolutely. And couldn't I like preempt that? Couldn't I like make YouTube videos, have experts, do interviews with more real estate people, like give them all sorts of education and normalize it, show videos of other people who didn't know anything about commercial real estate that then learned and now they've got that financial freedom. They're, you know, they were actually able to retire because they've yeah. got passive income that's actually passive. You know, like, as you're as you're talking about this, I'm thinking like this probably applies no matter where fear is stopping people from doing yeah, something, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think even what you're as you're talking, what it's reminding me of, what you're getting at is that when we tell a story, we can't we've learned we can't just tell all the rosy, like positive things, right? Or else people don't trust us. So we have to we have to tell a real story that includes the hard, but in a hopeful way. And I feel like that would apply the same to business. Cause really when someone sits down with you in a meeting, what they're trying to figure out is, can they trust you? You know? And if you try to make it sound like everything works out perfect all the time, they're going to see right through yeah, that. And so yeah, building up that trust, which includes not being afraid of the things that maybe didn't go the best, but you've learned from them, things like that. I think and are huge. Yeah, that's such a good point. Like, 
you know, it's great that the U.S. has these new laws. Like there's one called Regulation A+, which lets me do like essentially equity crowdfunding to raise money for our deals. Or there's one called, you know, uh, 506C, Reg D 506C, where I can advertise deals to accredited investors or Reg CF. Like it's great that there's all these ways that used to be illegal that made it really hard to get going. It was only the big guys who had the advantages. Now there's access for the rest of us. But But the the downside is like if you didn't if you didn't do this sales pitch over golf or over a long you know buying somebody a fancy steak they don't actually know you, do you yeah. know what I mean? So yeah. like it's great that you have this access and it's no longer illegal to advertise a, a five o a reg d five o six c offering which didn't used to exist. Except that it's not that big an advantage if they don't trust you, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Or if they're or if they're scared of what you're doing, like, you know, I think about fostering or or adopting. And it's like I have, I have four kids already. And you like there's all sorts of fears of like it. Wh- how is this potentially going to wreck the good things in our family already? How you Absolutely. know, like there's right all this stuff. And then I watch a movie like the Mark Wahlberg movie, The Instant Family. And it's like you see the problems and you see that they get through them. And you're like, you could feel safe of like, oh, that's probably what it actually is like. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. do you have any thoughts? Well, on I've that? seen I've seen a lot of for-profit businesses doing it in the sense of just showing average, like showing the average person using their product. And I feel like that's what the R twelve project is doing. We're showing the average person. We're not going off and getting Angelina Jolie or Mark Wahlberg, right? We're showing average people, normal people, doing hard things, and we're showing what their life and their story looks like, which makes the average person say, "Oh, I could do that." And so like Lexus, I mean, Lexus worked, we worked with Lexus this time last year. And what their whole campaign was, is we want to take average normal people and put them in our cars so that average, other average people will see average people driving. You know what I mean? It's just this like, I didn't know they called us average. <laughs> I just think it's a Except really for great you, Nick, You're exceptional. Okay. Thank you. Are. I was getting worried there for a second. It's the hair. <laughs> But I, I think it's it's so important right now. Like I feel like what this generation wants and the up and coming generation, we want to see ourselves in the story and in the narrative. And I think for profits are taking notice of that, especially with Instagram and social media and influencers and micro influencers and macro influencers. And I'm in awe of how the Archibald Project has been doing it. And now I'm like, oh what? Lexus is taking notice of just the average person telling their story. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. You know, what's interesting about that to me, I, I, so I've got a couple of friends that have like fulfilled my boyhood dream of, of being owners in snowboard companies. Okay. Oh my gosh. <laughs> now I'm super and, jealous. Right. And, and there's this thing of like the, the most amazing pros out there are inspirational. And I've watched, like I've wasted way too much of my life watching snowboard videos. They are so inspirational and they're so fun, but there's also this place for like, I want to see other like 40 year old dudes who like that ship has sailed. They're not becoming pros. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh and, yeah, absolutely. And I want to know what board they're riding. Like Travis Rice, you know, for me, best snowboarder in the world. Okay. He's, he's the Tony Hawk of snowboarding for me. And, and, but he's not exactly my height and weight and I'm not necessarily riding the exact terrain of him, even though I've got like Travis Rice snowboard and Travis Rice boots and my nine-year-old yeah. dressed up as Travis Rice for Halloween. Okay. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Okay. And, and, and yet there's, there is this place of like the aspirational hook, but then also where's the relatable, like, where's the relatable, like, okay, you know, what length of that snowboard really is right for you if you're not actually dropping 60 foot cliffs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're, you're athletic. You want to drop a 20 foot cliff, but not a 60. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Now what? Yeah. 
And like some of those, you think about like back to my investing example of like, just as we're saying this, I'm thinking like, I should probably go get a bunch of populations who are normally intimidated by investing. I think about like my cousin, my age, who's actually got a decent chunk of money, but she always felt like she was bad at math. And so she's intentionally avoided things that have to do with math. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the yeah. whole investment world is so overwhelming. It's like a bazillion options to choose. How do you know what's the good one? And right? Like, yeah. what if I took people like that and like, instead of just teaching them, what if I documented them learning? Hey, what's it like? Yes. This terminology that feels foreign. What if I could make it feel natural? Because we let her make the comparison to what it relates to in her life as a nurse or something. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Well, and, and in that even like she's going to ask the questions that people feel dumb asking. And now they have permission to ask that question and not feel like they're uneducated or, or something like that. One. Yeah. They're not alone in their fears. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes me think like you think about I think about how badly stories are done sometimes. OK. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like somebody, they say they want a story, but, but what they do is they get some like customers together and they like coach them into giving like a fluff piece testimonial Mm -hmm. where there's no personality. There's no, like they were great to work with and they always take care of me. I would recommend them to anyone. You're like, they will not listen to it. Yeah, exactly. There's no human connection there. I'm not doing anything different because I watched that fluff piece. Right. Right. Yeah. And yet. Think about the movies like my I feel like I'm doing all the talking. So I'm going to ask you guys a question. I think about what we can learn from movies. And like there's this like really entry level script writing book called Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. He wrote like some Disney movies and stuff. And he goes through like, hey, most movies that make any money, it's like everything's fine for 10 percent. And then by 15 percent, their whole world is there's like. They have to make this decision, the old life or the new life. And then yeah. funny, fun and games till like the first half of the movie. And then the bad guys start winning and then everything goes downhill. And then at 85%, <laughs> there's the climax where you think all is lost. And this is a stupid movie. Why don't I even come here? <laughs> it's all a collapse. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden he says it in the end, last 5%, you know, is like walking off to the sunset. It's funny because you read this book and you start watching movies and you can see it all the time. But where I don't see it is in nonprofit videos, in for-profit videos, like in army recruiting videos or state state legislature trying to influence videos, we go straight for the good stuff and we don't bring the realism of the challenges like you were talking about. Yeah. We don't we don't give this story arc of like like the best analogy I heard is boy gets girl, boy keeps girl is not a movie. Boy gets girl, yeah. boy loses girl, boy gets girl back is a movie. Don't yes. worry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so well in, oh sorry, go ahead. No, what I want to hear is I I want our listeners to get some like professional storytelling advice from you of what their videos, what a story arc is for a video. Oh, man, I I think it, it depends so much on what they're trying to accomplish. But I mean, from our experience, at least, it's exactly what you're saying right now with just kind of like the different beats of a movie. And you can almost track it by the minute if you have it written out. Most movies will follow that pattern. Like we're conditioned to consuming movies like that in testament to what you're saying is our most popular movie we've ever or short documentary we've ever produced it it was it was very high tension through the whole thing and it, it concluded but you didn't even really know who you were rooting for by the end right yeah. and and i think that's a testament that people want something real because you know getting back to that fear when people are afraid of something, if they can see someone else go through that fear, the fear maybe hasn't changed. The situation hasn't changed. They still may go through that hard thing, but we're 
so much more afraid of the unknown than we are the known. And so even in these movies, you're showing some sort of conflict that people make it through. And that's what people want to see. They want to believe that they can make it through that thing as well. And I think that's a huge part of storytelling for profit and nonprofit is people are smart. Like they don't, they can see through something when it's not genuine nowadays. Yeah. Whitney, would you add anything to that? I had agreed with Nick. <laughs> <laughs> he said a lot. I, I Sorry, agree. did I say he's too the, much? No, no, no. I just, he's the filmmaker. I do photos and storytelling, written storytelling and social media. So, But even the way you capture film, your photos, I think, makes a big difference. Actually, I have a thought about that. I, I heard this Leonardo da Vinci quote this week where he said something about learning to represent the body was easy comparatively. What took him what took him the most work in his life was figuring out how to capture intention. Mm. That's interesting. That's a really cool quote. And I thought about that of like, you know, I, I'm such a video nerd. Like, I just think it's such a great way to evoke emotion and stuff. And yet I'm a 2D artist. Like I took the very traditional route to mergers and acquisitions. I'm an art school dropout. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we got headhunted over to And I think about like the time that I've spent, like my, my big thing when I travel for business is like, I usually do like meetings morning till night and get like milk the most out of it if I'm going to be away from the family. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'll make time for like whatever the biggest museum or the biggest art gallery is in, in whatever city I'm in. Right. And I think yeah. about like just the huge amount of hours I've spent sitting and staring at a non-moving painting, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think about like some of the photography that like, it almost just like grabs you and forces you to sit still and, and contemplate it. You mm -hmm. know, I, I'm interested if you have any thoughts of like Leonardo da Vinci's idea of, you know, photography that captures intention. I think with photography, there's so much, at least in documentary humanitarian photography, there's so much that you can capture in a person's face that like it's this maybe sounds bad, but I don't feel like as a photographer, I have to do much work other than knowing how to like compose an image. But I just feel like working with humans who have their own stories to tell, you can, for me, you can see so much in the photograph of a human being who's lived a very different life than maybe we're used to in the West. And so I don't know. I don't feel like I have a very good answer for you there. No, but, you, but you know what you did say, though, is that you're filming them in the middle of their story, right? You think about the disservice a lot of us in the for-profit world do where we get a model and we stage them or we get this individual and we have them pose very unnaturally and mm -hmm. hold still. Yeah. And you think about like the backlash of just the incredible amounts of stock photography that we all feel like is insincere, means nothing and does not evoke an emotional response because it's just blah yeah stock photography yeah and listen if if you want if you want like great stock photography that doesn't feel like stock photography like you're gonna go to dissolve or something like this you're gonna pay out the nose yeah for, yeah for great video that doesn't feel like stock if yeah. you want if you want exceptional photos that you're gonna put like you know in a Wall Street Journal magazine <laughs> advertisement, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to iStock Photo or one of these right. places. Like right. you want something that you want something that looks like it wasn't posed. You want right. something that mm -hmm. has that deep context of the person in the story, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and the the facial emotion that facial emotion that feels natural. Don't you think? Yeah. Or well, how would you so, say it better? For our social media purposes, I've I think that's one of the reasons why our social media has 
grown so well is because the stories, the pictures are not stock photos. I mean, sure. Like if we'll put words over and fade out and we're not showing a face, then we can use a stock photo for, for the most part. They're not stock photos. They're real emotion happening in real time, candid shots. And I think that people know that. And that's why they tend to be more engaged. I'd say with the Archibald project so much so that I'm like, I could do this for other people's nonprofits. Like I am a, I'm a nonprofit photographer. I could do this. I know how to pull that out of people. So well, and it's always such a challenge too, because I mean, I feel like for a nonprofit, at least that's grown organically, I mean, we don't have a huge following, but around a subject that is not necessarily easily digestible or fun that people want to think about like vulnerable children, we've worked really hard to capture images and video that just like you're saying that will draw people in and not cause them to want to push away. But also, sorry, I now I feel like I could say a thousand words. There's also a big part of honoring people. And so we used to lead these things called media missions, where we would take a team of other artists over to an organization we agreed with the way they were caring for children. And we would teach them how to ethically tell stories about vulnerable people. And so that's a huge difference, too, with nonprofit versus for-profit, is I feel like you can't just hire any for-profit photographer to come over to do capture these really raw, vulnerable stories if they don't know how to connect with and honor the person's story. You know what? But here's the thing. I don't think for-profit people should be hiring that photographer either because (laughs) you're going to get, you're going to get this staged. You're going to get this staged thing that just looks like the competition because the competition is doing staged things. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's not, that's not going to be a long-term memory of your brand, of your cause, of your app, of your whatever. Like, you know, we know that long-term memory requires either repetition or intense emotional connection or mm-hmm. intense emotional event, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's why like video or like a really stunning photograph can stick with people is that like those, I don't know if, I don't know if mirror neurons are a real thing, but it's like, you know, when you watch somebody fall off a stairs on a skateboard and get really hurt and you go, you like, yes, you, yes. you go out, right? <laughs> Well, that happens when we see great art, great photography, great video. We have that slight experience of the person. It's like why, you know, I did competitive martial arts most of my growing up years. And it's kind of hard for me to watch MMA sometimes because I'm like so physically tense until it's over. (laughs) The whole time I'm like, why am I squeezing my hands? I'm not even there. That's awesome. Right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, that's probably why these brands are moving towards more using influencers because they're real people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, some of the some of them are more real than others. Yes, yeah, that's yes, true. yes. That's true. That's, that's true. true. So, so let's do this. Tell us a story. Tell us one of your favorite stories or, you know, a story is one of the YouTube videos that people can go watch or. Yeah. Oh man. There's a couple. I, I would say my, my personal favorite is we created this. I don't know how to call it. Not a TV show. It was kind of modeled a little bit after parts unknown. Anthony Bourdain, but instead of going to a country and exploring kind of the food scene and the geopolitical climate, we would look at what's going on with vulnerable children in that country and who is doing good work there and like what are they doing to solve that and trying to educate and inform and give people a real experience of that. And the last one we ever shot was in Thailand before we had kids and we had time to do this kind of stuff. And we went with an organization called Global Child Advocates, which they're actually in the orphanage campaign as well. 
And they were working at the Myanmar-Thai border with partially helping prevent human trafficking, like you guys have dealt with, and then just keeping kids in family. And just the people there, the experience, the food, the like one of the final scenes in the whole thing is in this the city dump where people are so poor that and they don't really have any other work that they live in this dump on the Thai border here. And this group of people with Global Child Advocates goes in and they work with them. They help get them things to meet their needs like water and food if they need it. It's so that they can keep their children with them in their family, even in a dump right? Where you'd think, oh, they definitely got to take these kids out. But the, the family tie is that strong. And just the, the scenery there, the, the beauty of the story, the beauty of the people, even like the main guy that we worked with the whole time and he took us around, he was a refugee himself and came out of a refugee camp and started working for this organization when he could have done anything else. He was smart, could have gotten a, a job doing something else, but he's chosen to give his life to helping care for his own people. So it's just super moving for us. Yeah. And then, and that was the last episode of that show we shot, which it's I think the is advocates on our YouTube page. I think okay. it's the best one. Cause we were finally figuring out how to do what we wanted to do at that point. But, and then our most popular video story was we were in a hospital with a birth mom and an adoptive family. And in Texas, when you are placing your child for adoption, you have to wait 48 hours before you sign your rights away for that child. And we were there and were able to document the, Don't tell what happened. the experience of the adoptive family and the experience of the birth mom as she's trying to figure out this decision over these 48 hours. And it's just this one of those times where you're there for a story in a moment that you could have never planned on it being the way that it did. And we were just fortunate enough to be able to there to capture it. And it's not beautifully shot or anything. I have one camera with a boom mic bouncing around in a hospital, <laughs> but the story is so powerful and it really opens your eyes to like, it's so easy for people. There's so many stereotypes around birth moms. And I think people can paint them as these bad people that who would give up their child and this and that. And oh my gosh, like when you see the humanity in this, it, it just, it changes you and it changes the way you think about people. And I think that's why it's been such a powerful story for us. Yeah. Are you kidding? I, I have so much respect for these women doing like such an unnatural thing of letting their kid go when they're honest about the situation that they're in, you know, like my yeah. college roommate, my college roommate was adopted for that very reason, you know? And, yeah. and it's like, man, what a, I mean, what a heart wrenching, and and confusing decision to make yeah. and and there's obviously no blake and answer but, but i think it takes a lot of guts i think it takes a lot of guts to do something that feels so natural that you might be criticized for like the, the you know to be in that situation where this is even a question there's probably already some self-image issues of yeah. the way they're feeling looked down on by the world or their family or their community do you mean like there's a lot going on right there yeah, yeah. and that's like a that's a really big choice and and then there's the other thing of like the uncertainty of like, as is the family it's going to going to be better than staying with me? Because you know, right. what I mean? like there's there's so many unknowns. Like that's a that's a rough that's a rough well, decision. The yeah. thing that I one of the things I loved the most from that story, it's called Forty Eight Hours on YouTube, is that it showed how much the birth mom Dominique loved her son. Like, just showed so much love that when we would show that video in public places. 
people would come up to us. There was one time a man, a grown man came up to Nick and just bear hugged him crying. And he pulled back and he was like, I was placed for adoption at birth and I've never met my birth mom, but I always, I grew up thinking that I was unwanted and unloved. But now I've seen this movie and I know how much my birth mom loved me. She, he was like, you just rewrote my story for me. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's powerful. <laughs> so I love stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. Whitney, I surprised you didn't know it was against the rules to make me cry on my own show. <laughs> well, then don't watch the free hour video. We'll definitely cry in that. Yeah. Are you kidding? I cry TV commercials. Dog food commercials. So, you know, it, it is interesting to me. Again, I'm going to go back for the for-profit angle on this. Yep. You think about how much time and effort we put into having these great products or this like desire, like if I just had a good enough service, shouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't word of mouth be enough? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, word of mouth probably is good enough to be at the level you're at. Mm-hmm. But if you want to be at the next level, you probably like, if you want something you haven't had, you probably need to do something you haven't done. You know, mm-hmm. pick any of the cliches that sound like that, right? And, you know, humans get called sheep for a reason. <laughs> it's it's very efficient to go like, well, if it works for them, it'll probably work for us. I mean, how many times have we done something that our friends did or my right. sister-in-law did or that, you know what I mean? It's like, it yep. worked for them. They said it was great. I think we'll go for it. That's the extent of my research, right? Absolutely. And you think about this chance for us to document real, authentic human stories. And story gets beat to death. It's like innovation or like culture. I mean, the words get so overused, they're almost meaningless, except for the people who genuinely understand them win. Mm. You know, Mm. the people who go past the surface level version of story and, and they don't get satisfied with the the fluffy testimonial, right? Yeah. And they, they, you know, I'm a fan yeah. of reading screenwriting books. You know, you hear these amazing screenwriters at USC or guys like Robert McKee, who many of the, you know, have taught many of the top screenwriters in the world by box office <laughs> dollars. Yeah. And they say like, if your movie doesn't have conflict, you don't have a movie. Like yeah. if there's no tension, you are not keeping your, your audience's attention. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking like, I hate conflict. I don't want to have conflict. I don't, <laughs> but you know what? If there's not something to overcome, if there's not an obstacle, if there's not something in jeopardy, it's not really a story. It's like yeah. a travel log or something. You yeah. Know yeah. I mean? yeah, no, absolutely. And like, think about this, like, oh, all these great organizations have tried to help these poor kids who have no mom and dad. And now we have 5 million kids in orphanages around the world. Look at how great it is. They're being taken care of. And like my family, we wanted to go to Costa Rica during COVID and go volunteer in orphanage for three months. You know, yeah. like we bought into the same story tons of people bought into. Right. And then it's like the, you know, back to my state, save the cat book. <laughs> then <laughs> Lindsay ends up teaching Jess <laughs> that most of those kids actually have parents. And, yeah. you know, and like, or that like the, the foster care system kids here, you know, the 10% or whatever it is that like, there are no parents to go home to. Like they are permanent ward of the state, mm-hmm. l- legally an orphan. Right. And it's, it's like this tension of like, you know, statistically, there's like a less than 1% chance that kid gets a forever family, whatever, right? Then, so, you know, you're down in the depths. (laughs) Then it's like, now what I feel like on this mini series is like the chance for it to go the other direction. You hear about these, these folks who are getting, you know, statistically unadoptable kids adopted and they get a forever family. And you hear about these orphanages that have become placement centers. We had Mike Gallagher on here talking about this orphanage in Kenya that had 200 beds. And instead they became a, a adoption center and they got those 200 kids adopted. And then they got more kids off the street. They got those kids adopted. They've had 3,000 kids get adopted out of a 200 bed facility. Like, that's a success story I want to get behind, you know? Yeah. And so it's like now we got the arc going back up. So maybe this is your next documentary, you guys. 
<laughs> Maybe. I hope so. I mean, you're talking about the, the unlikely stories, too. I mean, episode four of The Advocates that we were talking about, there was a, a blind boy from China who was about to age out at 14. So in China, when you turn 14, you can no longer be adopted. You can no longer be adopted. And you, wow. they, a lot of times, I can't say for sure this every time I've been told by people over there that they end up going to almost like a a facility for retirement, retirement home. That's thing. usually if they have unique needs, yeah. not like an average, oh, quote unquote, healthy person would age out and then be on the streets, be in traffic, be traffic, things like that. So this 13 year old boy that was destined for that ends up getting adopted by this family from Texas. And it wasn't easy, but it's like, what are the stats on that? Like you're saying like 1%, but it's, it's been done. It's been happening. But wait, okay, so you want to hear a cool story. <laughs> when we were there, this boy, his name is Nate. We met Nate's best friend, Noah. And Noah was about to age out about six months later. So the people at the the home, this like a, it's almost like a foster home for visually impaired children, they're like, hey, do you think we could get find Noah a family? And so we did a little like 20-second interview with Noah. We put it on Instagram. Within a month, family found, saw it, matched with him, and then he was adopted like six months later. Okay. Like, That's the most optimistic thing. Like <laughs> when you think about when you think about that leverage there, you think about how hard we work at so many things except getting the word out. Mm-hmm. Like people you think I'm creative or not. I'm a media person or not, right? And like you look at this, an Instagram story and a month later, there's a family. Yeah. Obviously. Obviously, this is not guaranteeing thing. Obviously, this, you know, it's an exceptional story in certain ways. But you know what? It made all the difference for that kid knowing. Right. Exactly. Right? Off of a off of an Instagram post. Yeah. Right. It's- and you think about people just willing to A, take the time to build an Instagram following, which, you know, I thought Instagram was for 13-year-old girls. You don't know what I mean? That was, <laughs> that was an interesting Instagram. Okay. Oh my goodness. Um, it's for snowboarding pictures though, right? Yeah, yeah, obviously. <laughs> That's what I eventually found out. Um, and but the willingness to pay the price to build the audience and then the willingness to use up some of that goodwill for something other than self-promotion mm-hmm. and permanently change a life like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Social media can be a really beautiful tool. And the more that I've learned about social media, the more I've fallen in love with it. And I can, I also know that it can be used for a really negative, in a negative way. But if you choose to use it the right way, it can be really beautiful. Well, and also those, those stories just showed me and drove in the idea that like, if you, if you said to people, there are a bunch of visually impaired boys in China about to age out, how can we solve this problem? You'll be like, I don't know. I don't have time for this. But you show them one boy who needs a family and people are like, oh, that's accomplishable. Like we can do that. Like you have mm-hmm. to, you have to show people a win, like something that they can do and not always this huge problem. And I think the same thing will be for this, for the orphan myth campaign. It's like the, uh, the whole actual thing of getting kids out of institutions and into families is really complicated. But if we can get these small wins and start slowly working toward family-based solutions, I think people are going to get behind it and they're going to see like we could actually get all these kids and families. And think Whether about what their own family or a foster, foster family, family or adoption, some, right? yeah. And like think about what the world will look like if 
kids are growing up in families instead of institutions. I mean, it's, it's generations of change that are going to happen. I love Absolutely. it. Will you guys, will you tell people, you know, websites and social media handles and, and where they can check yeah, all stuff out? Yeah, absolutely. We are about to launch a brand new website, but it's still our same URL, www.thearchibaldproject.com. We're on Instagram at The Archibald Project, Facebook, the Arch- everything's The Archibald Project. So YouTube. Pretty easy. Yeah. We don't do Twitter, but love our Instagram. Love YouTube. Love it. Oh, and well, podcast. Um, yeah, we have a podcast. podcast. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget about That's that one. Awesome. Around the World with the Archibald Project is the podcast. Yeah, we've interviewed some really great people. We have adult adoptees. We have people that grew up and aged out of foster care, transracial adoption, therapists, trauma specialists, lots of different interviewees. So, And they're all telling their stories and giving people advice on who are maybe in the middle of their own foster care journey. And now you have this adult who's been through foster care speaking to what helped in his own story or her yeah. own story. It's just invaluable information and wisdom between people. Yeah. And we're just talking to them. It's great. Yeah. They're they're the real heroes. I love it. Okay. Anything else you guys want to leave with? I don't know. When can we go snowboarding? I guess <laughs> right? that's the only thing. Oh my God. We did we did get several inches the uh, the other night. We thought we thought we'd, the season was over and we just got it we just got another storm. So <laughs> nice. There's some snow nice. out there right now. Come out come out to Park City. All right. Yeah. We'll let you know if we make it. Okay. Thank you. Thank, we yeah, appreciate thank you for this. this guys. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Bye. You bet. Bye.